city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. There is no doubt that the biggest crime story of 2018 was the arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo, or the Golden State Killer. Now, part of the notoriety of his arrest came from the method used to identify him. D'Angelo was arrested after being identified through forensic genealogy. So basically, a DNA sample from a Golden State Killer crime scene was uploaded to a relatively unknown genealogy website where a distant relative of the unknown perpetrator was identified. By creating extensive family trees based on this distant relative, they were able to identify suspects and law enforcement was ultimately able to investigate each possibility and then narrow them down until they had their killer. This was the first public case where this technology was used. Now, since then, dozens of violent offenders have been brought to justice, and today law enforcement is taking advantage of what might be the greatest tool for investigating violent crimes since the invention of fingerprinting, genetic genealogy. And our guest today has been right in the middle of it. Welcome to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show on DNA and the forensic use of genetic genealogy. I am thrilled to welcome Ms. Cece Moore, who is a chief genetic genealogist at Parabon Nanolabs. She is an internationally recognized DNA investigative expert, educator, and true pioneer in the field of genetic genealogy. Welcome to the show, Cece. Thank you so much for having me, Joni. Well, we are, we are just thrilled. So let's start out just defining what we mean by genetic genealogy. Genetic genealogy is using DNA to learn more about a person's family tree. So traditionally, we were using genetic genealogy to identify long-dead ancestors. For instance, our unknown great-great-grandfather, or to recover the maiden name of our great-grandmother that was lost to history. Later, we ended up using it to help identify birth parents of adoptees or other of unknown parentage. And of course, now we're using it to help identify violent criminals and cold cases. So I know that you use DNA, obviously, as part of this genetic genealogy. And I know that the typical role of DNA in crime scenes appears to be a lot different from how you use it. So how is it different? Traditional forensic genetic profiles are made up of only 20 genetic markers called STRs. When you're using that profile, you're looking for either an exact match, the person with identical DNA who's in the database already, or if the state allows familial searching, you might look for a parent, child, or a full sibling of that uh, DNA contributor. So it's limited to exact matches and very close family matches. With genetic genealogy, we're looking at hundreds of thousands of genetic markers across the genome called SNPs. So it's a different type of genetic marker, and we're looking at much greater portion of the genome. That allows us to detect and predict more distant relationships like second, third, fourth cousins and beyond. So it gives us this increased power to use DNA to, in a way, reverse engineer the family tree of an unknown person, like a violent criminal or an unidentified victim. So, Cece, when do 
police officers normally come to you? There's a multitude of ways that happens now. Uh, some of them go directly to Parabon. Parabon had relationships with law enforcement before they started offering a genetic genealogy service because they had a snapshot phenotyping service where they were predicting what someone might look like from this same set of SNPs we're using for genetic genealogy now. Um, so it might be an existing relationship Parabon has where an uh, agency decides to utilize genetic genealogy. It could be someone who hears about one of our successes in the news that reaches out to Parabon. Sometimes they reach out to me directly through my separate website that isn't related to law enforcement, um, but they'll Google me apparently and find my DNA detective site. And pretty often now, the families of the victims reach out to me and ask for help. And that's especially compelling when I hear directly from the people that have been so affected by these horrible crimes. I can only imagine. Now, are most of the cases coming to you, are these cases that have been, been unsolved for a long period of time? Are they new cases? What are you seeing? The vast majority are decades old. These are cases where the families have waited for answers for decades. Um, they've tried everything. Law enforcement has exhausted all the leads in the majority of these cases. Of course, there are a few more recent cases. We had an arrest today on a case we worked on that was from 2016, so not as old. And then we've also worked a handful of active cases, like a rape of an elderly woman in St. George that was red hot. And when I got that case, um, only a few weeks had passed since the attack. So it's, it's really a variety. The oldest case I've worked is 1967, I believe. And the most recent was one that had just happened a month prior. Wow. So would it be accurate to say that initially they were used more for cold cases when either the families or law enforcement was pretty much at a dead end and mm -hmm. looking for anything? And now as the technology develops, we're starting to see it being used in fresher and newer cases? I think that's true in general, but it still isn't typically used until other leads are exhausted. It just can be that the leads are exhausted very quickly. If they just don't have any leads or the few they have are quickly ruled out, they can turn to investigative genetic genealogy at that point. So for instance, with that rape in St. George, um, they, they had other leads, but they exhausted them. And so it wasn't that they turned to genetic genealogy first, but they just didn't have really anywhere else to look at that point. But you were talking about murder, we're talking about rape, and in the cases I've read about and when this technology has been used, it has been in cases like that. Why not use that to solve any crime? Well, it's a good question. It is very time intensive. It can be expensive, although cheap in comparison to the resources that have been spent on most of these cases. And I think the biggest hindrance or you know, reason people wouldn't use it for less severe crimes is because of public opinion and the people whose DNA has, that they've agreed to allow to be used in these, for these purposes um, pretty much agree that it should be reserved for violent crimes for the most severe crimes. Now that's not to say it couldn't be used on other cases, it could. Anytime someone leaves behind their DNA you could use genetic genealogy to identify them. Um, but I think at least for the, the foreseeable future, it will be reserved 
for those cases that need it the most, which would be the most violent and serious ones. I know with any new technology that comes along, there are understandable kind of pros and cons, people that are for it, people that are against, people that are warning about the slippery slope. If we start doing this, then it's going to lead to that. What do you think, Cece, in terms of some of the privacy concerns, for example, that people have talked about about this technology? Well, that's a very complex subject. Uh, There's a lot to talk about on it. But first of all, let me say that there are other investigative techniques that have had similar privacy concerns and objections at the time they were first instituted, like access to cell phone tower records, um, access to bank records, social media. And the public, you know, ends up getting accustomed to the idea in time and it becomes a more normal, accepted part of law enforcement investigation. So this is still really new. There's still controversy and disagreements, but I suspect in time it will become almost run of the mill that this is just one of the tools in law enforcement's toolbox for investigation. As far as privacy, well, I mean, there's a lot I can say. I was approached by law enforcement for years, um, asked if I could use these techniques that I developed and pioneered for unknown parentage to help address their cold cases. I initially declined to do so, and I had personal reasons for that, and that's because I was definitely one of the biggest promoters of genetic genealogy and the GEDmatch website um, for the last decade. So I felt a responsibility to the people that I had encouraged to test and upload to that database specifically, um, not to use their DNA, DNA in a way they weren't aware it could be used. So I really wanted to help law enforcement. I, I mean, who wouldn't want to help stop a serial killer, or serial rapist? Who wouldn't want to bring answers to families? But as a leader in my community, uh, an educator, a person that was you know, speaking to the media regularly, encouraging people to participate, I did feel a unique and special responsibility in handling that data. And I so I, I held off. You know, yeah. that was... It's not that I have no concerns about privacy in this. I do. You know, I can understand that. It's interesting because I've talked with several colleagues and most of them honestly feel similarly that I do, which is, hey, if there are criminals in my family tree, shake them right out. You know, if I can help, Mm -hmm. you know, if I can help justice in any way, then I want to do that. But I do think, as you're pointing out, that it is a a big picture topic and it is important, I think, when we have a new technology particularly one that wasn't initially designed to be used in this way, that we proceed with some caution and safeguards to make sure that people yes, do Yes, and I think, you know, I think the vast majority of the public does agree. Again, who wouldn't want to stop a serial killer? Who wouldn't want to contribute to that? But I knew the power of genetic genealogy and the potential. I knew what we could do with this tool. But... I also knew that my community had put a lot of trust in me personally. And so I was walking a fine line there. You know, I I hated to turn away law enforcement and to not jump right into these cases to help society and these families. Um, But I just thought that a huge power was going to be unleashed once law enforcement recognized what we could do with genetic genealogy 
And I wanted to make sure that everyone was ready for that, that had been part of building what we have. You know, this was a very unusual field in that it didn't come directly from academia or from traditional science. This was a citizen scientist-led effort. It was built through years of volunteerism, passion, innovation, and I wasn't the only one. You know, there was a group of early adopters that worked really hard building what we had, and I didn't feel that I could just take ownership of all of that and make a decision of how to use that data and the power of what we had built. Whenever I hear about cold cases being solved, or at least oftentimes, I hear about GEDmatch. So what is unique and special about GEDmatch? So GEDmatch was actually started by two of those early adopters, two citizen scientists, Curtis Rogers and John Olson, uh, longtime friends of mine. And it was originally started to collect family tree data, even before it started accepting genetic raw data files. And so it was um, really intended for the advanced genetic genealogists for this citizen scientist community. And the purpose was um, twofold. One, it was if you tested at, say, 23andMe and I tested at Ancestry DNA, and we wanted to compare our files to see if we shared DNA, we could upload to GEDmatch and do cross-company comparisons without paying for an additional test. It was also kind of a sandbox or playground for advanced genetic genealogists who wanted to try out new tools. The companies are much slower to introduce innovative tools. There's a lot more you know, red tape to get those through. And so we had some really talented people in our community that would build interesting tools we wanted to try out. And so GEDmatch was sort of the, the catch-all place for these innovations and these new ideas. And Curtis and John were supporting that. It was really just meant as you know a, a volunteer, not-for-profit uh, venture, little project on the side. They both had full-time jobs, and they could never have imagined it would have turned into what it did. Uh, another thing that's unique about it is they don't test any DNA. Nobody's spitting in a tube or swabbing their cheek and sending it to GEDmatch. They are simply a raw data repository for those who have tested elsewhere and then want to upload their DNA to that site. And so why was law enforcement but not going directly to 23andMe or Ancestry.com and saying, hey, can we upload this and see what we find? 23andMe and Ancestry DNA are really focused on other goals that are not related to law enforcement. I was pretty naive back in 2012, and I approached the management at 23andMe and asked if they would be willing to allow some crime scene DNA to be uploaded into their database. Um, so I was thinking about this way back then. And I thought, it's a good deed. Who wouldn't want to be part of this, of course, right? <laughs> I was quickly schooled <laughs> that they did not want law enforcement to be part of their brand. They were very focused on medical research and secondarily genealogy. I had a similar conversation with Ancestry DNA a year or two later. So it was clear to me very early on that we weren't going to be able to help law enforcement 
through these two major genealogy databases, 23andMe and AncestryDNA. And so we were going to have to find another way. That other way was clearly going to be GEDmatch, but it grew very slowly. It's a much smaller database than these big commercial databases. It wasn't very well known. And so initially, there wasn't enough data in that to address these cold cases. And that really was true until about 2018 when it was used for the Golden State Killer case. So let's talk about one of the cases that you've been involved in. I know you've been involved in some pretty amazing cases. Let's talk about the Angie Dodge case. You picked my favorite case right off the bat. <laughs> well, that's lucky. Well, I can see how it might be because it is such an interesting case with so many different kind of twists and turns to it. So tell us about that case and your yeah. involvement in it. Well, of course, I'm sure I don't have to say, but I will clarify all of the cases are deeply meaningful to me because I know they've had such huge impact on the families and the communities. This case was unique, and there were multiple reasons for that. The first being that we were dealing with extremely degraded DNA. And in genetic genealogy, we'd always been dealing with fresh DNA. You know, somebody spitting in that tube and mailing it in. And so we were working with a complete file or an almost complete file in all of my prior work. But once I started working with law enforcement, crime scene DNA, of course, some of it's degraded. And I had great doubts we would be able to apply genetic genealogy in cases where we had highly degraded DNA. In Angie's case, we only had 61% of the DNA that we were able to analyze through our genotyping process. So instead of 850,000 genetic markers, you know, we were missing in the 300,000 area. So that meant that there were big portions of the DNA where we weren't getting results. So that was a challenge and it was interesting and it was a, really a triumph that we were able to still identify a suspect in that case with such degraded DNA. And it let, was, let, me jump, let me jump in here just for a minute because as I'm listening sure. to you, I'm thinking, so if you have degraded DNA, is it possible that you could misidentify somebody or there be a false so, positive? That's a great question. And the answer is no. And the reason is because my work is all based on commonalities, patterns, overlaps. All the pieces have to come together to create a cohesive picture. If you have bad data, you're just going to go in circles. You're never going to find meaningful patterns and overlaps, and you're never going to be able to put those pieces together. So that is a lot of people's concern, but if they're educated about what we're doing, you'd realize that that's really not what would happen. You're just going to waste your time instead. Now, that's not to say that somebody could try to use genetic genealogy and come up with uh, a erroneous conclusion. The terrific news for us is that no one's being arrested based on genetic genealogy alone. We're providing a highly scientific tip. It should be treated really no differently than if someone called into Crime Stoppers with a tip. It's a lead generator, and law enforcement has to build that traditional case, do that traditional investigative uh, process before they would arrest anyone or charge anyone with a crime. We're going to take a quick break. That's a great place for us to stop for just a minute. When we come back, I really want us to kind of go through this case piece by piece because I, lo I really love what you were saying and that 
genetic genealogy does not solve a crime. It provides a lead. So we'll be right back on Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and my guest today is Cece Moore. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and my guest today is Cece Moore. And our topic for today is DNA and the use of genetic genealogy to solve crimes. And we were right in the middle of talking about a really interesting case that was solved in this manner, and thanks in large part to our guest. So, Cece, tell us more about the Angie Dodd case. So, Angie Dodge was a young woman, a teenager, who lived in Idaho Falls. She had just moved out of her mother's home three weeks earlier. It's the first time she had her own apartment, her own place, and she was renting the upstairs of an older woman's home. She was viciously raped and murdered just three weeks out of moving out on her own, which is obviously devastating. She had just graduated from high school, was starting her adult life, and it was tragically cut short. There's a lot of interesting aspects of this case. Her mother has been a a true activist for her daughter in getting justice in this case. And she was a big part of us finally identifying what I believe to be the true perpetrator in this case. Um, Going back to what I was saying, just to wrap it up, the success using such highly degraded DNA, I feel like it's a gift from Angie Dodge in the sense that it taught us something we didn't know about genetic genealogy techniques. And because of that case, I went back and revisited multiple other cold cases where we had degraded DNA that I didn't think were workable that we ended up helping to solve. And so it doesn't just end with Angie's case. It's, it's a, a test case basically that has much greater implications for future cases. So that was one of the great things about it. The other, One of the other great things about it is, as I mentioned, Carol Dodge. She is a force of nature. Angie's mother was not going to rest until she got justice in this case for her daughter. And she was part of pushing me forward as well. When I saw that degraded DNA, I was doubtful we'd be able to perform genetic genealogy. And Carol just begged me, please go back. Please see if you can do it. And so because of her encouragement, I went back into that data that I didn't think was going to be viable and started building trees and found commonalities, found common ancestors and found, wait a minute, this data is making sense. And I don't think I would have done that, put that much time into sorting it out if I hadn't felt uh, the need to help find answers for Carol. She's just an incredible woman. Um, Idaho Falls Police Department is who hired me and Paramon to do this work. Um, So they deserve a lot of credit as well. But they also say they were inspired by Carol's dedication to this case. 
And because of that, they were willing to embrace any new, any new technology, any you know, new lead, anything they could try to try to bring resolution in this case. I am often so impressed by how frequently I hear that, that it just seems like sometimes it just takes one person. And of course, oftentimes it is a family mm-hmm. member of someone who has been taken too soon, who really just, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's a law enforcement person who just somehow gets involved in the case and just won't let it go. And then ultimately it can right. be 20 years, 15 years, 30 years later, they get it solved. So you get this mm-hmm. degraded DNA and you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of not sure it's going to work. You realize as you do the data that it is working. So tell me what happens next. You start building, you get this relative and you start building these family trees. So one of the misconceptions with genetic genealogy is people always ask me, what was the one match that solved the case? But in reality, it's almost never one match and it shouldn't be one match because you need to have supporting data. So it's much more common that we're using a dozen matches or 20 matches. We're looking for people who share significant amounts of DNA with this unknown suspect. And for us, significant could be less than 1%. You know, we need to find somebody that would have traceable common ancestors. And so when we're looking at those match lists, we're trying to make sense of it. And one of the ways of doing that is trying to build what I call genetic networks. If, for instance, on that match list, our top match, our third match, and our fifth match share DNA with each other, in addition to sharing with the suspect, that means they should all have a common ancestor in their family tree. Since they're known individuals, if I build their family trees and find the common ancestor between them, that gives me a piece of that suspect's family tree. I know he must also descend from that common ancestor or ancestral couple because he's carrying that shared DNA with that genetic network of matches. Then if you go to the next set, so look at matches two, four, and six, for instance. If they don't match with that first genetic network, they represent a different branch of the suspect's family tree. So I'm gonna then build their trees, see if I can find their common ancestor. If I'm successful, I now have two sets of common ancestors in that suspect's family tree. Now I do what's called reverse genealogy. I'm gonna build forward in time instead of backward, so opposite of what you traditionally do in genealogy. I'm gonna look at all the descendants of couple number one and couple number two, and try to find where someone married from those two families and had a child, or they might've had an out of wedlock birth. We need to get that DNA mixing. So we have someone who descends from both sets. So in this case, we built three different genetic networks. We had to find someone that descended from all of those. We also had an earlier Y chromosome analysis that had been done. Um, Y chromosome is passed from father to son, father to son just along that direct male line. And so you can sometimes predict someone's surname from that. So I had a potential surname, I had three genetic networks, and I had to put all those pieces together somehow. It was very challenging, but I had narrowed it down to the descendants of one couple, and there were six potential persons of interest that could have been Angie's killer. Well, we pretty much eliminated all six. I'd never had that happen where I couldn't find this person. I knew we had to descend from 
where all these genetic networks came together, where all the pieces fit with this one couple. I knew he had to be their grandson or great-grandson, but yet I wasn't finding him. Turned out we had a missing seventh descendant, somebody whose parents had divorced early, mom had taken him, he'd been adopted by a stepfather, so there was no public records or social media or anything that was connecting this person to the family of interest. And so it was really challenging and there was a lot of ups and downs, but I just could not let down Carol Dodge. You know, I just had to keep going to I find the answer. I can't even wrap my head around how much work this would take. It just must have just taken hours and hours and hours and hours. Correct. Yes. And so, you know, the DNA is actually a pretty small part of what we're doing. It gives us the basis. Who do we need to investigate or research, but the vast majority of the work is building family trees backward and forward. We're using public records, we're using social media, using newspaper archives, anything I can to piece these families back together and identify the people that would be carrying the right DNA to potentially be this person of interest. And so at what point, or at least what guides your decision, Cece, to turn over the suspect list at a certain time? In other words, how do you know, okay, we've gone as far as we can, or we have a manageable list of suspects? What guides that decision? That's a really great question, and it's absolutely dependent on the data available. So sometimes you get lucky, and there are... Uh, there's a lot of data and you can really narrow it down to just one person or a set of brothers. Sometimes there isn't enough data to do that. In this case, I could only narrow to this one couple that was further back in the tree. So I knew he had to be a grandson or great grandson, as I said. So I couldn't narrow it to one immediate family and say it's one of these brothers. So there were six persons of interest that would potentially carry that correct ancestral genetic mix. And at that point, I can't narrow it down any further because we don't have any additional DNA to do so. Um, or we don't have additional data to do so, I should say. So in some cases, I can hand a name over. In other cases, I have to provide a less whittled down list. And the law enforcement agencies then would receive a set of recommendations in my report of how to move the case forward. So in this case, there were six people, five of them lived over a thousand miles away at the time of the crime. Only one of them had moved to generally the right area, the right state. And so they investigated those six people to see if any of them fit. Of course, the one that moved closer to the crime scene was of most interest, but eventually they were all ruled out. And so, you know, that's the thing about genetic genealogy is, again, it only points them in a direction. If they can't build a case otherwise um, against any of these people, if they don't make sense as the suspect or their DNA is collected and it doesn't match, they aren't going to be arrested. So here's an interesting question in terms of we talked about the fact that, okay, if you have DNA, you can't really have a false positive because worst case scenario, mm -hmm. you can't use it or you just end up kind of going around in circles. 
is it possible, and I'm sure theoretically it is, I guess, is it likely, as maybe a better question, that if you are handing over occasionally a list of three suspects or a list of 10 suspects, Mm -hmm. that there could be a false positive there in terms of, you know, it appears to be this person when it isn't in reality, it's not. Oh, absolutely. Just like in this case, it would appear that the one of the six that moved to Idaho would be the suspect. But they go out and collect DNA from anyone who is a strong suspect or a strong person of interest. And it has to match that original forensic genetic profile that I mentioned, those 20 STRs that is used in the traditional law enforcement databases like CODIS. There's no false positive there. You know, the numbers are usually one in, you know, 100 quadrillion that anyone else could have this same mix of genetic markers. And so there are cases, sure, where genetic genealogy, you know, points at, say, a person of interest or a set of brothers, and they go out and collect their DNA and it doesn't match. So they're not going to be arrested. So we are fortunate that we have a, we have checks and balance. You know, there is a way that our work is checked. And if it's not a match, it's not a match. So someone who wasn't skilled or made a mistake could certainly point them in the wrong direction. But it should never lead to an arrest because they have to get that match to their STR profile, their traditional profile, before they arrest. You know, it really seems like some of the checks and balances are pretty foolproof from a DNA perspective, at least. Well, they are. And, you know, I keep getting scheduled as an expert witness on these cases, and then I keep getting canceled because the precedence that's being set in court so far is the genetic genealogy truly is just a lead, as we have said, and it's not court admissible. It doesn't need to be evidence in the trial because it's not what leads to the arrest and the conviction they're going to go back to that original profile that they developed from that crime scene DNA at the beginning or in, you know, once DNA came into use and see, does this person match? And that is what's court admissible. So, so far I haven't had to go testify because they've ruled that it is really pretty irrelevant after the fact, once they get that match to the, the traditional court admissible profile, as I keep saying, um, that's what matters, not what led to it. And are there any guidelines or advice that you give to law enforcement officials when you give them this narrowed down suspect pool? Again, I know sometimes you're able to give an actual name, but in the situations mm-hmm. when you're not able to say, this is the name, are, are, are there, is there anything that they should know in terms of investigating those individuals because I'm wondering as I'm as we're talking I'm wondering if okay if somebody came to me and said we want to swab your DNA or whatever what if I say no I don't want you to swab my DNA I don't have a criminal record um, you know and so what and what do you do? have that right so when we provide our report after the number of hours we've been con- contracted to work on the case Um, As I said, it varies. It might have one name. It might just say, we know he's a great, great grandson of this couple. We always provide a set of recommendations. We can't control what they do in their case. It's their case. But we do everything we can to educate them on best practices, on next steps. And so on cases we can't narrow it down, we would typically recommend what we call target testing. So if 
those second great grandparents have eight children, um, they can test people who descend from those eight children to see who is most closely related to the suspect to further narrow it down. Now, when they do that, that's typically done through just approaching people in that family that we've identified and asking if they will provide their DNA. If they say no, then there's always someone else to ask. You can ask their sibling, you can ask their cousin, you can ask their child. And so there's really no reason to try to compel someone to provide DNA when it's simply for research purposes to further narrow down the tree. Um, so I wouldn't want to see anybody uh, pressured to provide their DNA. It's their right to say no. And that goes back to my original hesitation in helping law enforcement in these cases. I wanted to be sure that the people whose DNA was being used for this purpose got to decide whether that happened or not. I wanted everyone to know that law enforcement was using GEDmatch before I felt comfortable going ahead and helping with law enforcement cases. Because sure. I do believe in you know, personal choice. We should all be able to decide, do we support this or do we not? And there's enough people in the country that do support it that if we can encourage those people to contribute their DNA to GEDmatch, we don't really need to bother with the people who don't want to because we don't need everyone's DNA. We only need a subset of the population's DNA to be, to be able to successfully identify these suspects. You know, whenever we talk about genetic genealogy, especially from a forensic standpoint, it's so easy to focus on the fact that we can identify perpetrators, we can bring justice to victims or their families. But one of the things I think that gets overlooked sometimes is the fact that it often, it sometimes can be used to exonerate people. <laughs> And you know, your I listeners, know that, I'm sure know how smart I, you are, but you have the best questions. Oh, well, thank you. And I know this also relates to the Angie Dodge case. So tell, tell me about that. Yes, that is the other aspect of this case that makes it one of my absolute favorites. People focus a lot on arrests and putting people behind bars because of uh, genetic genealogy. But this was the first case where someone was actually exonerated thanks to investigative genetic genealogy. And it was another reason I felt a lot of pressure and responsibility because Angie Dodge's mother, Carol, had initially wanted this man, Christopher Tapp, to be convicted and even put to death for her daughter's murder. But after he went to prison, she realized that he likely wasn't guilty. And she started fighting to get him released from prison and exonerated. He spent 20 years behind bars for the rape and murder of Angie Dodge, but his DNA did not match the crime scene DNA. And so when I was able to finally identify the contributor of that crime scene DNA, Christopher Tapp was fully exonerated and the murder charge was expunged. And I expect he will be uh, compensated as much as a person could be for that wrongful conviction. So that was a huge triumph. So what is the ending of that story, Cece? Who do you believe was the person who killed Angie Dodge? Well, it still has to be fully adjudicated. And of course, he's officially innocent till proven guilty. But a man named Brian Drips has been proven to be the contributor of that DNA from the crime scene, from that vicious crime scene. 
And he initially confessed. He has since pled not guilty and he is scheduled to have a trial. So, you know, we'll have to wait for full justice. But we know without a doubt he is the person whose DNA was on Angie Dodger's body from the night of her murder and rape. And so I feel very confident that we have now correctly identified the person responsible for her murder and rape. And Christopher Tapp has been fully exonerated now um, because not only did Brian Drips confess, but he said he acted alone. So the earlier theory that there had been more than one person there, including, including Christopher Tapp, was blown out of the water. This man had nothing to do with this. He had no knowledge of this crime. And so he is finally free from that huge burden, not only of the time he spent in prison, but afterward, he'd actually been released thanks to the efforts of the Innocence Project and Carol Dodge. So by the time I worked on the case, he was no longer in prison, but he still had a felony murder conviction hanging over his head. Imagine trying to live your life, get a job, you know, live in our community with that type of burden. That would be a burden that would impact you on a daily basis. That's for sure. Yes. And the exoneration, a- oh, sorry. I was just going to say the exoneration also leads to him having the ability to be compensated financially, which is obviously a huge benefit for him. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break and come back. And I want to switch gears, Cece, when we come back. So we've talked about the significance of this technology in helping solve cold cases or even ongoing cases. But I want to talk about identifying victims because that's another thing I think that often gets overlooked. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? The good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence and our really interesting discussion today with Cece Moore, who is an absolute guru in the field of genetic genealogy. And before the break, Cece, you were telling me about how this technology is not only used to identify a person who has committed a crime, but is also used at times to exonerate people who we have believed have committed them, but did not. Yes, there are quite a number of people in prison whose DNA does not match the crime scene DNA. So potentially any of those people could be exonerated if the contributor of that crime scene DNA was uh, confidently and successfully uh, identified. But I wanted to talk in a broader sense because there's so much focus on the arrests that uh, happened because of investigative genetic genealogy. But one of the things I'm most proud of is what the public doesn't see. And that is the power of genetic genealogy to 
rule out a huge amount of people, the majority of the population. In all of these cold cases I've worked, they looked at dozens or hundreds or even thousands of persons of interest. In all of these cases, the person we ended up identifying was never even on their radar. And that means all of those people who had been suspected previously, investigated, had their lives turned upside down in some cases, were innocent. And so if we use investigative genetic genealogy earlier in these investigations, we can eliminate the need for the vast majority of innocent people to ever be put under suspicion. So I think that's a huge positive in favor of using investigative genetic genealogy. And I think it means that there are innocent people that will never end up going to prison because of this, you know, because we've certainly seen innocent people get pulled into these investigations and then it gets out of control, like with Christopher Tapp, and they end up convicted. If we that is, that is such people out right from the beginning, then that won't happen. And that is such a great point because Christopher Tapp was obviously somebody who paid a huge price for, mm-hmm. you know, for having to go to prison for a murder he didn't commit. And yet, I have met plenty of people who have been under a cloud of suspicion and were mm-hmm. never charged with anything. And yet right. it completely changed and sometimes destroyed their family relationships or their relationships with their friends. Um, people mm-hmm. didn't view them the same way. And so it really is encouraging to hear you talk about using this again, not only to identify potential perpetrators, but also to without question, clear people from any right. suspicions, because even though you're not legally charged with something, you can be, judge guilty in the eyes of people, whether you're in court or not, for sure. We all know that. It's happened in so many of these cases, even where family members have had their their lives ruined, never arrested, but their own communities and friends and family blame them in some of these cases. So to me, that's what I'm most proud of, I think, is that we can really help to clear people's name on a large scale, not just exonerations like Christopher Tapps. You know, you were talking about Carol, Angie Dodge's mother, several times mm-hmm. and how much you admire her. And as a mom myself, I can't, there are a few things that seem worse to me than losing a child oh. in this way. It's just, it's just <laughs> heartbreaking. Another nightmare would be not knowing what happened to your child. Yes. Your child goes missing. And or, or your child runs away or your child leaves or whatever. And, and then 20 years go by or 10 years go by and you have no idea where that person is. So I want mm-hmm. to talk to you about the use of this technology to identify individuals, maybe victims of crime, who we don't even mm-hmm. know who they are. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was actually the next thing I wanted to do. After I worked with people of unknown parentage and we made a lot of progress in that area, I was looking for another challenge. And what I had intended to do was to try to help identify those 40,000 or so unidentified deceased people. Because to me, it was very much in line with the work I'd been doing, providing answers to families, um, resolution. I don't know if we can use the term closure, but it was very much in the same vein. It would just be reuniting families in death instead of in life like we do in adoption cases. And so that was really my intention, not to work on suspect cases, but to work on Doe cases. 
And so we had our 100th successful identification today from my Parabon genetic genealogy team. And most people assume that means we've identified 100 violent criminals. But actually, there are a number of those cases where we have used investigative genetic genealogy to identify an unknown victim or an unknown deceased person. And I'm very proud of those cases. They are extremely important to me as well. Now, is the process the same? Or how do you go about doing that? It is. It's exactly the same, except once we start narrowing in on the specific family, we're looking for someone who's missing. So that's the only difference is with a suspect case, that person is likely still out and about or they've passed. And there are records that show them in recent times or as dying. When we're looking for a missing person, we're looking for someone who just disappears out of the records. There's no social media or recent social media. There's no recent addresses and public records. They just fall off the face of the earth. Now, it's rarely someone who's been reported missing because if it were, they would have already matched up the remains with that case. These are very often cases where there are either families that are estranged, there's unusual circumstances that make this person make people believe this person left on their own you know, volition by their own will. Um, their family members have died. Some of these people have lost their parents and were perhaps, you know, only children. And so it's usually a more unusual situation where uh, it's not a clear answer. I'm not going to Google them and find a missing report, but I am going to Google them and realize, wait a minute, where is this person? We know they were born, we know they lived, but their records stop, say 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And then that is really the key to narrowing it down. You know, is this person still alive out there creating public records and a, a, a trail or not? This may not be within the scope of our conversation today, but I did read something in looking at all the information that your organization sent me about phenotyping. Mm -hmm. And I was yes. fascinated by that, just absolutely fascinated by that. So please tell us a little bit about that and how that works. Well, I wish I had more time, but it's actually very important that Parabon decided to pioneer this technology for taking DNA, either crime scene DNA or an unidentified person's DNA, and predicting what they looked like from that. So what, was their, what were their traits, their eye color, their hair color, their skin color? Did they have freckles? What's their shaped face? And so that was something they pioneered, and they actually used this SNP genotyping process to create the data that they needed to make these predictions. That happened to be the same data we needed for genetic genealogy. And so that really is what broke through that wall of how do you get crime scene DNA in the right format for genetic genealogy analysis. And so although it was a very separate goal and process, it, it worked so well um, for these crime scene DNA cases. Sorry, it worked very well for these cold cases that have already had the phenotyping process done by Parabon. What it meant is we had a viable file already ready for genetic genealogy analysis once we decided to offer this service to law enforcement right after the Golden State Killer suspect was arrested. So we had 100 
crime scene files that we could upload to GEDmatch, you know, immediately upon getting permission from the agencies and jump right in trying to identify them. And this was both suspect cases and DOE cases. The other good important aspect of the phenotyping is it helps us to narrow it down. So if I have six potential persons of interest I've identified through genetic genealogy, maybe three of them have blue eyes and the phenotype prediction is very high confidence that we're looking for someone with brown eyes. So it's also a tool to narrow down the field of suspects to eliminate a huge percentage of people from being under suspicion. So they're working in conjunction to the same goal. So I think what I'm hearing you say is it's these things work together that right. maybe you wouldn't necessarily use a phenotype to identify somebody, but you would use that as an additional piece of data when you are using building your networks or your family or your trees to then add that in to narrow it even yeah. further. So prior to Parabon offering genetic genealogy in May of 2018, they were offering this phenotyping service to law enforcement. And what it was intended to do was to narrow the field. It was really meant to eliminate suspects or at least downweight suspects based on their traits and allow law enforcement to more efficiently uh, investigate persons of interest. Now, occasionally it was close enough that it would identify the suspect right off the bat. That wasn't really the intention of it, but for instance, there's kind of a funny story where a phenotype came out and this man stood up in church, this young man, and said, okay, I give up, it was me. Because it looked identical to him and everyone was whispering, oh my gosh, you know, it looks just like this guy. And so it inspired him to confess to the crime. Um, there's other ones where the victim has been shown a phenotype and they realized they knew their attacker, you know, who had been wearing a mask or they hadn't seen. And so it can lead to an arrest, but most of the time it's really just meant to eliminate or downweight persons of interest who don't match that phenotype. And when it's used in conjunction with genetic genealogy, it can be incredibly powerful. So you actually, or this technology can actually generate a picture what a person might look like. It's not like a list. A person has yeah. brown hair or brown, you know, blue eyes. It's an actual picture. It is. Now, it's not intended to be a photographic likeness. It's just an approximation of that collection of traits. So somebody with, you know, brown eyes and blonde hair and freckles and olive skin, for instance. Um, they also do use genetic markers to help predict the shape face, the distance between the nose and the chin, the nose and the forehead. So sometimes it's shockingly similar, but that's not really what we're intending. You know, we don't expect people to look at it and go, oh, that's so-and-so. Um, although, like I said, that occasionally does happen. Yeah, it but, sounds like it did in this one case, yeah. <laughs> yes, and it does. I mean, it's happened a few times, but really the emphasis needs to be on the, the confidence level of the traits. It's never 100% confident. It's like 95% confidence that this person has brown eyes versus blue eyes. So there's still a small chance they have blue eyes. It's just much less likely. And that's science. You know, it's rarely a definitive 100% answer. So it's really just meant, again, to help them zero in 
on the higher confidence persons of interest, um, but not totally rule anyone out. So I know we're out of time. I just wanted to ask your last question, which is if there was one thing that you would want us to remember from this interview today, what would it be? I think what we talked about, that the power of genetic genealogy really is to eliminate innocent people from being put under suspicion or investigated. And that is, for me, the take-home message that I think is missed in the vast majority of media that covers these cases. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and especially the information and even more especially just the work that you're doing because it just seems like you are contributing to so many really important aspects of law enforcement, of justice, of helping people find a resolution. And again, I just applaud the work that you're doing. Well, it is certainly my privilege. And I should add that I have been so impressed by the detectives on these cases. They are so dedicated to finding answers. And I know we hear a lot of negative about our law enforcement And so I do want to emphasize that there are a lot of amazing law enforcement out there working for the good of society and working for these victims and their families. Um, I just never had a reason to be involved with law enforcement previously, and it's just been such a a wonderful lesson and gift to see these hardworking people. You know, a lot of them are these big, tough guys. You think they'd be desensitized from these horrible cases they see. But when we finally get resolution in these cases, without exception, I've seen them cry, sob. Like they take this home with them and they care about us, about society, about these families. And so I think that's another important lesson from all this, certainly for me personally. And you know, that's that's such a great note to end on. It, It is a sentiment that I completely agree with. It's something I have seen over and over in my career as well. I'm often astonished at the yes. dedication that so many law enforcement people have in, in helping families and, and bringing justice to people. Thank yeah, you for- so I appreciate the acknowledgement, but I just don't want them to be lost in all this because without the great work of our law enforcement people, I wouldn't have the ability to work on these cases. And I just am honored that I'm trusted with them. It was been it was a delight, and thanks to our audience as always for listening to Thread of Evidence. Again, I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, your host for the day. Our guest has been CC Moore, who was a pioneer in genetic genealogy. We look forward to following your career in the future. Thanks again for listening to our show, and we'll see you next time.